You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 29th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me as always are Bob Novella. Hey everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello everyone. Jay Novella. Hey guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi everyone. Does everyone know what happened on this date? In 1964. Uh, um, 64. That's a long time ago. Lord, that was like ages ago. I I yeah, don't know. It's a long fire time ago. was fire invented. <laughs> the Earth cooled. Abacus. There's some abacus advance. We give up. Doctor Stephen Novella was born. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh Who? yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Happy birthday, Steve. Happy uh, birthday, Steve. Happy birthday, Steve. Happy birthday. Thank you, guys. I didn't know they named you Doctor, though. <laughs> no, I was not born a doctor. <laughs> Thank you for spending your birthday with yeah, us. Yeah, this is cool. And what Loser? else would I be doing on my birthday? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Having a party <laughs> with your friends. Being with oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm getting drunk. (laughs) Well, my daughter's birthday was yesterday. She was born a day before I was. You know, her birthday is a day before mine. So the family party was yesterday, and then the friends' party is going to be this weekend. So, Steve, what'd you get for your birthday? I got a new Nikon D90 camera, the one I've been dying for a while now. It's awesome. It is sweet. It's a sweet piece of equipment. That's a digital SLR, right? Digital SLR, 12 point something megapixels. It's got live preview. Got a sweet lens with vibration reduction. Wow. A significant upgrade. I mean, the D70 I was using before was awesome, but this is twice as awesome. How many megapixels does the human eye see at? I read in an imaging magazine years ago that human vision, in terms of lines of resolution, it was 10,000 by 10,000. But, you know, you're really limited by the resolution of the screen you're viewing it on and the printer you're using to print them up on. And in general, unless you're printing, you know, enormous posters, then you don't really need that many megapixels. Not to say it's not an awesome camera. No, that's just, correct, yeah. except yes. what megapixels get you yeah. is zoom. Crap. Because Cropping. It's, Right. If you're going to crop, your increased megapixels is equal to to zoom, right? I could take a picture of something twice as far away or twice as small as my previous 6-megapixel camera, and it will still come out with the same resolution. Hmm, that's a good point. So for bird photography yeah. or wildlife oh, photography, things like that's what it, wildlife. it all comes back it, to birds. It absolutely makes a difference. If you're just taking portrait pictures, you know, yes, you're right. You, you, you're totally wasting the extra megapixels. You don't need it. Yeah, Steve, I get that. But it's also, um, it's also good to know that in, in, a, in the future technology, we could take advantage of those unused pixels and create a real nice picture of something that you took years ago and really right. yeah the goal is like like in blade runner right we want to be able to zoom in and go around corners and stuff <laughs> right you guys remember that wait 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 yeah, yeah but jay you're not are you saying that the picture in blade runner could actually determine what was around the corner i mean if the light doesn't reach hey, settle the, down the film okay? it's not going to be recorded <laughs> my impression was that he just he just zoomed the hell out of that thing bob yo, bob yo. he indeed did did go around from my memory he indeed did go around objects no you're wrong he was he was zooming in on a tiny reflection of like a mirror in the bathroom or something i think bob's right he got down super super tiny like steve was saying and zoomed it and zoomed in so close that it was full resolution but he just you know he just found that one light path to the reflection 
Yeah, similar to that. You're right. Okay, there. we got right. it. But the we point is, we got it, Bob. You you <laughs> can't go back to pictures you took five years ago and add resolution and no. add megapixels. Whatever the the resolution was when you took it, that's it. You can interpolate, but that's not the same thing. Yeah, new new uh, information is not going to come out of that. But so that's I guess that's the, the birthday news. But let's go on. I mean, to some happy birthday! News. But come on, <laughs> that's you. the birthday news. Hey, I didn't bring that's up the birthday hubbub. We're going to start by talking about the oldest animal fossils that have been found. Interestingly, you might think that animals, meaning multicellular life, you know, animals, evolved in the ocean, right? I mean, that's kind of I think what most people think of when they think of you know, those pictures of the primordial soup, you know, and the single-celled animals, and then they evolved into, into multicellular creatures. But the evidence suggests that it's possible that the first animals evolved in large lakes and not in the ocean, which is pretty surprising because lakes tend to be less stable and long-lived than, say, the ocean environment would be. Right. And this all comes from a fossil deposit in southern China, South China's Daoshantu Formation. And these are the most primitive or the earliest animal uh, fossils that have been discovered roughly 600 million years ago. Wow. Geologists are pretty sure that this formation that has the characteristics of a lake environment, not, not an ocean. So that, which leads to the, this conclusion or this speculation that, well, then maybe that's where animals, in fact, evolved, which would be a significant change from, from prior thinking. Well, I mean, is it an either-or situation? Right? Like, they either evolved in lakes or in oceans? Why not both? Uh, well, that's a good question, but you, well, you have to start think- somewhere. Oh, you mean the, just the earliest examples? Yeah, the earliest. Yeah, I mean, obviously all animals are related. You, you know, it's, there, there were not multiple origins of multicellular animals from single cellular life. So there right. had to be some original origin somewhere. And so far, that seems like it was in a lake environment. Of course, the thing is, when something began, usually all we can only say that based upon what the oldest example is that we have of it. But it's unlikely that the oldest example we have of something is actually how old it really is. That's just statistically unlikely. When we look back at the evolution of life, we look, we're looking at these windows, right? We have these windows back into time, and the, these windows are fossil finds, like, or like this, this fossil formation. Everything can change. Our thinking can change significantly about how long ago and in what kind of environment animal life first evolved if we find some other fossil formation that is older and uh, is in a different environment. Well, so, yeah, and, and on that thought, I mean, it's easier to search lakes, right? So, I mean, the oceans are large places where there could be tons of fossils that we just don't have access to, right? Well, actually, in, exi- in, in the, the oceans is not a place you would actually even go looking for fossils because the um, plate tectonics, the conveyor belt you know, underneath the ocean, is constantly destroying the, the ocean floor. It's, getting, it's diving down underneath the continental plates. Subduction. Yeah, and, being, and subduction and being, and being recycled. So the oldest part of the ocean floor is only about 120 million years old. Uh, so if you want to go back 600 million years, you have to look on a continent. Well, Steve, don't forget, though, a lot of – what is it, the Pacific? The, uh, there's yeah. no real subduction, but it's seafloor spreading, right? It's coming up in the middle and separating mm-hmm. and spreading apart. 
Well, yeah, it's all part of the conveyor belt. It's coming up right. in one place and then moving across and then diving down in some other place. But it's constantly turning over like a right. conveyor belt. So you, you need to have like mountains that at one point were under, under the ocean on a continental shelf, right? So on a continental plate, but underneath the ocean on the shoreline and which is where a lot of the life is anyway. And then the mountain, then it subsequently, you know, rose up above sea level and now we have access to it. So that's, so there are places where you can find fossils that were previously under the ocean. They're yes. usually, they're usually on mountaintops, you know, uh, ironically. What, what, what a testament to the ancient age of the earth, seashells on the top of a mountain. Right, exactly. Hello. That's right. That yeah, right. came from the ark, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the flood dropped it off there, right, Bob? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. The next news item is about a new state of matter that has been created. Bob, can you tell us about this? Yeah, I love reading about uh, new states of matter. It's, it's fascinating. But lately, though, I've been getting to the point where, like, really? Is this really another state of matter we're talking about here? Um, but this one, let's see if you guys are uh, – Obviously, I think I know you guys will recognize this. This time, the, the scientists are saying that they've created transparent aluminum. Whoa. Yeah. Now, right? wait a minute. Oh. Wait a minute. <laughs> now, it's, now, it's transparent to uh, intense yes. UV radiation or soft X-rays, not you know, not the visible spectrum. Not from Star Trek. When Scotty, when Scotty invented transparent aluminum. You got it. You got it, man. If you're even a <laughs> cadet-level Star Trek fan, you, you have to be thinking of Star Trek <laughs> Four, The Voyage Home. When <laughs> that was the <laughs> right. real one, right? Right, right. Yes. So they go back in time because this alien probe appears at you know 24th century Earth, and they want to talk to the extinct Ooh. whales, so they've got to go back in time, right. and they got to, they find a whale back in present, modern day you know, United States. They find some some whales, and they need a big fish tank for the whale. So Scotty uses this primitive computer program that he has no familiarity with, and quickly designs an aluminum uh, for this tank that's transparent to, to visible light. Yeah, can I light. also say that he was blazingly <laughs> fast on that keyboard? Oh why yeah. Would, why would he know how to use right? a keyboard <laughs> if he, you know, lived his entire life in an age of voice recognition computer software? So really, really, this is what the podcast yeah. has come to. But I digress. <laughs> this is what we've evolved. evolved. No, no, keep we going. Let's not interrupt that for a podcast. He was talking into his mouse. Yes. Yeah, remember that? Well, oh, that, God, was another, that was another computer. Computer. But every article, almost every article I read, mentioned this, made the Star Trek connection. Even had pictures from Star Trek. Of, wow, they're really, uh, really reaching there. But of course, I could understand if you're a fan. That's the first thing you're going to think of. So now, states of matter, right, guys? That's we all know: the solid, liquid, and gas. Mm-hmm. But then there's plasma. Also the, plasma. the fourth, yeah. the fourth state, which Especially is plasma. Gas. That's the most common state of matter in the universe. Then you got really wacky stuff like quark gluon plasmas and Bose-Einstein condensates, which is uh, one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> so, so now we got a transparent aluminum. Apparently, what they do with it, though, the way they create it is pretty interesting. They use a, a very special laser called the flash laser in in Hamburg, Germany, that uh, shoots out these powerful bursts of soft X-rays. This is so intense. This is so powerful that you could actually um, it provide enough electricity to light up an entire city uh, with the energy that this laser spews out. Now, of course, you could light up the city for a t- the tiniest fraction of a second, but it's still a lot of tons of energy. Yeah. One article I read said that it's 10 million gigawatts of power per square centimeter. Now, I, I would never say there. I would never say 10 million gigawatts. I would, of course, translate that to 10 petawatts because how often do you get to say petawatts? Uh, Not, you know, no more often than once a week or so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So when you hit matter with energy this intense, it, it knocks out these your, these core electrons that are that are around the, each atom, and, but it doesn't disrupt the crystalline structure of the of the, of the metal. So it kind of stays, it keeps its shape, and nothing too crazy happens except you lose these these core electrons from every from every atom. It's not one at a time because if you just knocked out one of these electrons, then other electrons would would come in and take its place. But you're pretty much knocking them out of every atom mm-hmm. at at once. So, so you've got a, a period of time. Let me Bob, hang on. Is that the whole elect- <laughs> electron cloud that gets pu- like blown away, no, or it's, just it's, chunks of it? No, no. It's these, it's these core electrons, core electrons, which the core electrons are knocked out. So then, what, when when you knock out these core electrons around every atom, then the configuration of the other electrons kind of adjust themselves. They become more tightly bound, and then the X-rays can't get absorbed anymore. So they just sail right through, and that's that's when it becomes transparent. When it can't absorb the uh, these powerful X-rays anymore, and the, the X-rays just go sailing right through. So Justin Wark of the Oxford University's Department of Physics says that what we've created is a completely new state of matter nobody has seen before. But the state doesn't last long, though. It's uh, he says that as soon as you make it, this stuff blows up. It lasts mm-hmm. about 40 femtoseconds. So it's not like They've made a wall of aluminum that you could see through. It's really the tiniest little sliver of aluminum that is transparent to X-rays for just 40 femtoseconds. So it's a far cry from what Scotty was doing there. But you know, you might say, so what? Who cares? But as usual, the ap- the potential applications are pretty interesting. Wark says that transparent aluminum is just the start. The physical properties of the matter we're creating are relevant to the condition inside large planets such as Jupiter, and we also hope that by studying it, we can gain a greater understanding of what's going on during the creation of miniature stars created by high-power laser implosions, which may one day allow the power of nuclear fusion to be harnessed on, here on Earth. So the, down the road, we, we might see some interesting stuff from this technology. And did you guys – the feeling I had when I read this was like, is, is this really a new state of matter? And I came across a commenter who said that, he, he kind of agreed with me, and he said that seems this new state's only property is to be transparent to UV light. And taken from that point of view, I kind of agree that maybe it really isn't. But the other side of that coin, though, is that I think it maybe is a really a new state of matter because what they what they really created here is a dense solid. It's like an ordinary solid, but it's incredibly hot. So it's it's like matter that's a deep deep inside Jupiter the, at the core of Jupiter. It's it's got a normal density. Or a high density, but it's very hot, and generally you don't see that because if something gets really hot, it gets very, it you know blows apart or is very diffuse, and it's not generally dense and hot at the same time, except under these extreme conditions. So, from one point of view, I guess it is another state of matter. Right, and it might actually exist in these in some large planets. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's move on to from uh, aluminum to mercury. The FDA has now altered their stance on mercury amalgam fillings. And the FDA now says that after reviewing all the evidence, mercury fillings in teeth are, in fact, safe, uh, which is not really a, a big news to you know anyone who's followed the science. The, there really has never been any evidence that mercury in, in fillings in teeth posed any health risk. Yeah, I was really surprised to see that and a little worried because I'm like, wow, I've been under the assumption the entire time that it was safe. It is, you know, but like so many things and a lot of these claims, there is a small dedicated community 
who thinks of themselves as a as a consumer protection type of group, but in fact they're just a, a group of true believers who have latched on to the notion that mercury in in dental fillings causes all kinds of health problems, and they don't have the science on their side, but that that has not stopped them. So these are like the anti-vaxxers or or, in, or similar groups. Is there any research that shows that these fillings have been dangerous or have done any damage to anyone? No. So they're flat out just basing it on conjecture. Well, the worry was that mercury in the fillings could get loose and you swallow yeah. it, yeah, and then there's right? And that's how it gets into yeah. your system. It can build up, and mercury is very dangerous, and it builds up in your system, and especially for like pregnant women and things Too like that. Fish. Yep. So it's one of those things with just enough truth, I think, to make it plausible enough to pass around. And I know that I always heard it from like friends and coworkers, oh, you know, you shouldn't get the mercury because that's really bad for you. Um, not knowing that it's got no basis in science and right. that it actually is quite safe. So, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where when there's there's just enough truth in it to make it believable, but yeah. not enough to actually yeah, so make it true. He, here, the, it is mercury, and yes, mercury is toxic, but toxicity it's is the always good a mercury. matter of... It's always a matter of dose. <laughs> no, isn't it delicious isn't it? mercury? No, Steve, there's two types. Steve, there's two types of mercury. One your body deals with nicely, and the other one not so nicely. Right? I assume it's the the, the mercury that your body can deal with, uh, can tolerate, and flush well, out it, more quickly than the other one. There's ethyl mercury and methyl mercury. Right. I think it's methyl and filling. Um, and methyl mercury is the more toxic of the two than ethyl mercury. But again, the, it's not like the it's being injected into your body or anything, like in in uh, in vaccines. But that that's in that's ethyl mercury, which is is the easy more easily excreted. The real question with the with the amalgam fillings is how much of that mercury is getting into your system. And sure, it would be a bad thing to for them to come out and to swallow them. There is a real risk too dentists, right? So if you spend 20 or 30 years of your career working with this stuff, then then a, a low level of exposure over many years can become a problem. So it's it's classified as a moderate risk medical device primarily because of the risk to the dentists who are using it. Not it's not really a risk to people just having fillings in your mouth. And the only real risk to people who have the fillings is is the uh, rare cases of actual allergy to mercury. So if you're allergic to the stuff, it's a problem. If you're not allergic, there's no evidence that it's that it's any problem. And what what the alarmists say is that there is mercury vapor coming off of the, these fillings, and that this vapor get you breathe it in, and it goes into your tissues, and that's where the toxicity comes from. But that's never been demonstrated. And remember, there's that video on YouTube. You can you can go where they show with like an infrared camera alleged vapor coming off of a mercury amalgam, but that's fake. It's not mercury vapor. Mercury vapor would would sink. It wouldn't be rising. It's probably just water vapor. That is what they're they're showing on there, just evaporation. Uh, it's not mercury vapor. It doesn't make any sense at all. So it's, it's really just pure pseudoscience. There's never been any, any legitimate concern about fillings. The thing that really cracks me up is that if you go and have all of your fillings taken out, the, that process is probably exposing you to more mercury than if you just left them in there in the first place. So the people who have all their fillings removed, you know, it, it's not even doing what they are hoping to accomplish. It's actually increasing their exposure to mercury, not reducing it. And then, of course, you know, people, some people who have these vague, undiagnosable syndromes, this is one of the kinds of things that they latch onto. Oh, it's their mercury fillings that's been causing their aches and pains or fatigue all the time. So it becomes like 
you know, chronic Lyme disease or candida or, you know, the, these diagnoses that people latch on to to explain their vague symptoms. How, what, the reason why the FDA had a, a, any kind of warning about this was because they were sued by this group. This, there's one group, um, Consumers for Dental Choice. I love these misnomers for these kinds of groups. <laughs> And they basically they forced the FDA's hand by, by just harassing them in court. No. But now the FDA has reversed that. They said that they, they've completed their systematic review of all the signs, and there's no risk you know, to, to mercury filling. So they're removing the warnings that they were forced to put there in the first place because of, of this lawsuit. Charles Brown, from this group, Consumers for Dental Choice, says in response to the FDA... Uh, FDA's action that oh, this yeah. show that this is he says contemptuous attitude towards children and the unborn says this contemptuous attitude will not go unanswered <sighs> so they're fanatics right I mean if, rather than ma- making this about the science they're trying to make it sound like the FDA doesn't care about children and the unborn come on that 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 kind of rhetoric is Crazy. worthless uh, appropriately enough the most recent person to warn me about mercury fillings in or mercury and fillings uh, use tanning beds on a regular Oops. basis, yeah, which right. were recently uh, determined to be as cancerous as mustard gas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Don't you, you choose it. your risks. Yeah, pick yeah. your poison. Pick your poison. <laughs> Evan, tell us about people being hypnotized. This is from Israel. Do you, you know they have an advisory committee on the law of hip, of hypnosis in Israel, and they have br- brought down a mandate declaring uh, that. People who are licensed to practice hypnotism, they must refrain from helping clients explore past lives. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you are not allowed to... Uh, right, right. So hypnosis is regulated oh, in Israel as like a medical intervention. It is, yeah. There's the, it, it falls under the uh, jurisdiction of the health ministry there. Mm-hmm. And it's an advisory committee that actually keeps an eye on people who are licensed to practice hypnosis. Right. So there's a standard of care within hypnosis. There is. Practitioners. And they're saying now that that does not include past life regression therapy. Right. Israel actually, according to this article, has several experts on reincarnation hypnosis who give sessions that aim to, and I quote, discover who they were in past lives, according to Dr. Liana Sofer who uh, apparently is a practicer of these treatments. She says, the reincarnation hypnosis allows us to return to the prenatal stage. Oh, great, because we all want to be there, don't we? <laughs> Here's my well, well, you know, eventually we'll all be at the prenatal stage. Isn't that dead and gone? Isn't that the same thing? Non-existent? Essentially, yes. But you have a bright so future. So we'll all get there eventually. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that they even have to come down with a, with a ruling like this is, uh, mm-hmm. is is pretty remarkable. However, you know, the ministry apparently decided not to completely ban the practice. They said, in keeping with the decision to allow a host of other practices which are not recognized as therapeutic by modern medicine, but they are believed by some to be remedial. So, essentially, they can only give this mandate to the people who are licensed to do it, but I guess the unlicensed hypnotists are allowed to go out and and do this so it's kind of it's kind of strange um so it's not like there's a law in place completely banning it the any legitimate experts you speak to understand that this is just you know pure pseudoscience and nonsense one of the uh doctors from uh one of the mental health centers 
Dr. Aviv says, this is a mystical practice for people who believe in reincarnation. Hypnosis and reincarnations have nothing to do with one another. We've seen a number of cases where practitioners tried to perform this on patients and things went bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine so. You know, basically what they're, they're doing is inserting false memories into these people through hypnosis. Right, they're creating a false memory syndrome, which is purely an artifact of, of erroneous um, therapy. You know, whatever your shtick is, whatever method you're using, you're implanting false memories into people. That's what happened with um, a lot of the alien abduction therapists mm-hmm. who were using hypnosis. John Mack. Yeah, but let's clarify, let's clarify using hypnosis because I thought hypnosis was kind of on the fence as it was. It depends how you're what? using it. If you're using hypnosis for relaxation therapy, fine. But if you're, if you're encouraging people to imagine that they were abducted by aliens or you're encouraging them to imagine a past life, that's where you get into the false memory, the implanted memory problem. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that that is a risk without benefit. And, you know, risk without benefit in medical interventions is generally considered to be unethical. Or at the very least, you need to have informed consent, right? So sometimes that's where these things go. It's like, okay, you can do it, but you got to warn patients that it's crap, right? Can I, can I, can I implant a false memory in you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I Lay guess back. so. Is it a good one? Lay back, watch the Is watch, and I'll tell you all one? kinds of things that used to happen to you. Here, uh, it, to wrap this up, though, the, uh, the doc, Dr. Sofer, the one who actually does this reincarnation hypnotism, she said that uh, she cured a woman from chronic neck pains after having discovered she had been decapitated in a previous life. Oh, I didn't know that these kinds of th- you know these kinds of things follow you from past life to next life and oh, yeah. how many you know all these maladies. There you go. Yeah, don't get an MRI of your neck of your neck or anything like that. I mean, you know. Uh, so, no. so Evan, what does that mean if time. my ass hurts? No, what that means, Jay, is that uh, in a past life, just like this one, you were a pain in the ass. That's what that means. I got you. Okay. I was just going to suggest that you send it to uh, send a picture of it to Sylvester Stallone's mom and let her sort it out. Oh yeah, she's a buttologist. <laughs> That's right. But how I, what I love about past life regression is that everybody was an interesting character yes. in their previous life. Yes. When in fact, wouldn't like ninety nine percent of the time be like. You were a peasant who led a completely boring and, and uh, who, un- unimportant who life. Who ate mud and, <laughs> and had, couldn't read or write and had two teeth. You right. were kind of a jerk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or, you know, you were a slug because, you know, FYI, there's seven billion people now and Seven? there weren't that many back wow. then. That's so right. Where'd they come from? It's a good point. One more news item. People can actually smell fear. Yeah, they can smell it. They uh, conducted a study recently and found that uh, the smell of human sweat, when the person that is sweating it is terrified, that that it contains a chemical that uh, not only registers in in people, like in other words, you know, you would notice it, but you also could have an emotional reaction to it as well, which is kind of on the whole like pheromone idea. Like we're kind of back to the pheromone idea here, which we've talked about in the past. There is a uh, neuroscientist at Stony Brook University in New York uh, named Lillian Mujica Parody. I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, she ran the study, and she was collecting sweat from first-time skydivers, which I thought was interesting. And then what they did was they took that sweat, and they had people smell that sweat while they were 
under an fMRI scanner, <laughs> and they were I guess they were testing the mental reaction of these people smelling the sweat, and you know they you know what they actually found um, some significant findings there. I, activity in the amygdala region of the brain, yeah, which is the emotion center, basically. Huh. Exactly. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Uh, plus, there was also some responses found in the areas involved in vision and motor control and goal-directed behavior, which I also thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. They also uh, tested non-stressed produced sweat, and you know what? They didn't find anything. It did not, wow. it did not have the same reaction. That's a good control, yeah. So it's not something generic to sweat, only in sweat from people who were sweating because they were under emotional stress. Another interesting thing there was that... Um, the stress sweat seemed to heighten people's awareness of threat, and they actually put an, a percentage on there. They said it was about 43% more accurate in judging whether a face was neutral or threatening. Right. If they smelled this particular, that type of sweat. They, they also studied the active chemical, because you know, the thing about this study was that they were using sweat, which contains a lot of different chemicals. But they were trying to narrow down the actual chemical or, or group of chemicals that's doing it, and they found that they believe now it's a steroid called, and here we go, androstatinone. So anyway, there it is. Pretty interesting. Seems pretty, it seems proven now that we can pick up a vibe from somebody by their sweat or their chemical on their skin or, or whatnot. You know, this probably is going to open the door to more similar studies. Interesting. I mean, it certainly makes sense you know, that we would evolve this mechanism by which if one person in our group is experiencing extreme fear that we would are we would get heightened sense, senses and alertness and we would be all keyed up and, and looking at, looking for danger. Am I the only one who who thinks that this will quickly be picked up by the military and used as a a, a weapon? Oh, Rebecca, yeah. don't yep, don't, don't get don't get it wrong. The military funded this study. Woo-hoo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, it so it makes it makes sense. You know, making uh-huh. people terrified with a blast of ascent. Or making them calmer using this uh, information. That's true. By, blo- by blocking the receptors, yeah. Why do I feel that the military is going to go with the fear one? <laughs> yeah, you, I, well, you wonder about that, though, because would you really want to artificially induce this and maybe downregulate those receptors or have people keyed up all the time? Or would you want them to be responding to actual fear in the in their comrades, right, and they're, and they're the other soldiers that are around them. What do you mean? So in other words, you're envisioning, you know, some nasal spray or something that reproduces this, whatever hormones produce this effect, so that in combat they could be all keyed up and ready to go, right? No, no, I'm thinking the opposite. I'm thinking, you know, this is something that you can use to, to terrify people. You could use it as um, maybe it's something that you blast out amongst a, a crowd to freak them out, but you know, yeah. toward your enemies, or maybe you use it as a torture device to you know shoot up someone's nose in order to get them to confess or something. Mm-hmm. That seems the, a more likely result, I think. Really, I think the nasal spray to improve performance on the battlefield is the first thing that I thought of. But by freaking someone out, but it doesn't freak them out. It makes them have heightened awareness and senses and a sense of danger, you know? It sort of puts them puts in a state that's ready to deal with a threat. Yeah. Right? They had a 43% more accurate judging of, of whether a face was neutral or threatening. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to be able to perform any better. Well, the, these sound like questions for future research. These are the, exactly the kind of things that will need to be sorted out. Let's go on to a couple of emails. First, a couple of corrections from last week. No corrections. 
couple of corrections. We were having some fun with the pronunciation of the new element 112, uh, named after Copernicus. Oh, we yeah. didn't like the fact that it was named Copernicium. Copernicus. We thought it Cop- should have been Copernicum. Copernicus, yeah. But, but uh, it seems that the uh, the proper pronunciation is Copernicium. Copernicium. Ah, which didn't we suggest you? that as a possibility? Yeah, I, th- I thought we did. I, I think we somebody might have said it, but I don't know if it made the final cut. Yeah, of the show. someone, edited, Bob, someone then we'll just say out. that I said it. I think I, I agree that Copernicium sounds better than Copernicium, but it sounds even less like Copernicus. I yes. still think Copernicum would you're, be you're, better. Absolutely. You mean Copernicus? Just like Einsteinium, right? Einsteinium sounds like Einstein. Right. Californium. Yeah. Right. Copernicum. Yeah. Come on, people. All right. The other really quick. <sighs> Let us name the next one, guys. Okay, that's the point. Run it by us, please. Thank you. Yeah, Rebeccaium would have been easy. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Rebeccaium. Watsonium. We were talking about Thomas Jefferson last week, and I made the offhand comment that Thomas Jefferson had something to do with the forming of the Unitarian Church, and it turns out that that's not true. Although he had Unitarian sympathies, he never was officially part of any Unitarian Church, and he certainly did not form it. There is, though, there is a Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Church, but I think they're just using his name. And what do they believe? They're Unitarians, you know. The whole point, the, 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 key, the core of that is, is the, the Trinity versus, you know, is, is there really three aspects to God, you know, God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, or is it just a, a unitary God? Jefferson actually thought that within 20 or 30 years, the Unitarian view would actually predominate in the United States. He was wrong in that prediction. One more email. This one comes from Jamie Preston, who writes, Steve, I got this list from naturalnews.com. Apparently, the H1N1 flu vaccine is yet another way to catch autism. I especially love the last line. Flu vaccines are attacks on people who don't understand health. Yes, a couple of people pointed this out to me. Now, naturalnews.com is like Woo Central. I mean, the this is a website that is just chock full of medical misinformation. It is completely ideologically driven. It is anti-science-based medicine. Anything quacky, these people buy it. That's not parody, right? You, yeah, you, joke, you could right? almost think that it's parody. It's beyond All right, parody. all right. I admit it. I'm behind natural news. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been pulling this one for and years. And crap-based medicine, too. That's no, no, true. No, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> so here's the 10 things. And this is, I don't know that we need to go through all of them, but they're, they're pretty funny. Number one, the vaccine production was rushed and the vaccine has never been tested on humans. Do you like to play guinea pig for big pharma? If so, line up for your <laughs> they calling flu a vaccine this fall. Right. <laughs> now, of course it's rushed, but it's a flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is a known entity. You know, you, you, what does he think that we need that we should go through clinical trials of every <laughs> flu vaccine every season so that by the time the study's done the flu vac- the flu season's over i mean that would be worthless that, that that's pointless the vaccine itself absolutely is tested it's just which which antigens are being targeted by the flu vaccine from year to year and this one is going to be targeted against the h1n1 or, or swine flu that that's going around so that's completely misleading. Number two is 
Swine flu vaccines contain dangerous, dangerous adjuvants that cause an inflammatory response in the body. This is why they are suspected of causing autism and other neurological disorders. First of all, they are not suspected of causing autism and other neurological disorders. That itself is a complete myth that is not evidence-based. The evidence shows there is absolutely no correlation. And the, the, the first sentence here, the adjuvants that cause an inflammatory response, that's the point of a vaccine. That's how they work. Vaccines stimulate the immune system to produce an inflammatory immune response against whatever it is you're immunizing somebody against. That's the point. That's how they work. It's not dangerous. That's effective. Interestingly, that point, which is wrong, directly contradicts point number three, the next point. The swine flu vaccine could actually increase your risk of death from swine flu by altering or suppressing your immune system response. There is zero evidence that even seasonal flu shots offer any meaningful protection for people who take the jabs. Vaccines are the snake oil of modern medicine. Wrong. So first, in number two, he says that vaccines cause an immune system response, which is what they're supposed to do. And then in number three, he says that it suppresses the immune system. Wrong. That's a myth. This guy's completely misinformed. Vaccines do not suppress your immune system. They stimulate the immune system. They provoke a response. The way the immune system works is when it gets exposed to, to a foreign um, antigen, is, is what it's called. An antigen is anything that provokes a response from the immune system that binds antibodies. Then the antibodies bind to it. They target the cells in the immune system to attack whatever it is that is, whatever it is that's invading that has the... Um, the antibodies attached to it. And then some of those cells are memory B cells, right? They're B cells that remember whatever it was that provoked that response. And in fact, there's a little bit of a fine tuning that goes on, right? You produce antibodies pretty much against everything. And then the ones that react to the antigen are the ones that provoke B cell production. And then a whole bunch of those kinds of antibodies get made. And then from those antibodies, the ones that bind best to the antigen are, are, will again further provoke uh, uh, B memory cells. So the antibodies get more and more affinity for the antigen. And then the next time you get exposed to it, you have an immediate response of antibodies that are already fine-tuned to whatever that antigen is. That's the whole concept behind vaccines. That's why they work so well. That's why there are many infections which you don't get twice, because once you get it, your immune system is primed against it. The reason why we can get the flu every year or that we can get multiple colds is because these viral strains change their antigens. They change from year to year, from strain to strain, from season to season. So they're constantly staying one step ahead of our immune system. The point of the flu vaccine is to give you immunity to the, the strains that we're likely to encounter the next season before you do so that you have a very rapid immune response rather than having to be sick for three weeks with, with, with a, 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 an illness. So this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. He compl- and he, and he doesn't, even, doesn't seem to be aware or doesn't care that he's contradicting himself from point two to point three. Um, let me do a couple more. 
Point. I was about to say, how many more of these does he have? My God, there's too much stupid. There's ten. I know. I know. <laughs> the next one, though, the next one is probably one that people have heard about. Doctors still don't know why the 1976 swine flu vaccines paralyzed so many people, and that means they really have no clue whether the upcoming vaccine might cause the same devastating side effects. Wrong. We know exactly why the 1976 swine flu vaccines caused paralysis in some people because it provoked Guillain-Barré syndrome. Guillain-Barré syndrome is a known entity. It's a post-infectious syndrome, and it can be occasionally provoked by vaccines. Anytime you stimulate the immune system, you run the risk that the immune system might get confused, and while it's attacking proteins or antigens on a bacteria or virus, they will look similar enough to proteins on your nerves, on the coating outside of your nerves, that the immune system gets confused. It starts mounting an immune response against the nerves. Right, that's what Guillain-Barre syndrome is. That's something that's actually tracked pretty carefully for all vaccines. And and we know that the, you know one in a million cases or so of vaccines are going to get a post-vaccination Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's one of the known risks of getting vaccines. It's not like we have to we have no idea what's going on and no way to to know what the risks are of the same thing happening again. So that's just wrong. That's so that's the first I mean the other ones are just as stupid as those. They're all wrong. This guy gets everything wrong basically. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are here at TAM7, and we are being joined by Jennifer Willette. Jennifer, welcome to The Skeptics Guide. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you haven't given your talk yet. Usually we do the interviews after the talk, uh. but for scheduling reasons, we needed to interview you before your talk. So tell us what you're going to be talking about. Well, um... As of last November, I've got this new job with the National Academy of Sciences. They have a new program called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Um, and essentially, it's, I guess for lack of a better thing, it's 1-800-FIND-A-SCIENTIST for Hollywood. That's kind of the bread and butter what we do. We're essentially trying to bring scientists together with people in the entertainment industry, particularly in film and television, um, just to get them interacting more, talking more with each other, because a lot of times um, those interactions can affect you know how scientists get portrayed what kind of science gets portrayed um, on film and television and I don't think I need to tell anyone here how powerful that medium is when mm-hmm, it comes mm-hmm. to creating perceptions when it comes to what people think about um, science in general um, I'll be showing some clips uh, from a couple of science themed TV shows because one of the reasons I think that it's particularly a good time right now for this program is because there are so many uh, science-themed shows on television. You've got CSI, you've got Numbers, you've got The Mentalist, which is entirely a skeptical show. Right, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you've got House, who is, of mm-hmm. course, a conf- you know probably the most famous atheist right now on, right, <laughs> on right. network television. <laughs> so I'll be showing clips from a few of those shows and talking a little bit about um, the impact that they're able to have, sharing some behind-the-scenes stories of what we've done so far, and talking a little bit about why we feel that this is important to do this. Because partly, yes, it's to get better, quote-unquote, science, more factual science in television. But we have to balance that with a need to tell a story. Ideally, what we want to do is get the message across. And one of the points I'll be making is, first of all, even bad science can provide a teaching moment, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, Phil Plate, I think, uses this to great advantage when he does his film reviews and he points out the quote-unquote bad science. Um, It's a teaching tool for him. Mm -hmm. And it gets a broad audience because people love these movies. 
Right. Um, and the other thing I want to point out is that over and over again now, you, we're, we're hearing the same message, follow the evidence on CSI, which is a, you know, holds up the, kind of the banner of critical thinking. You've got the mentalists saying, you know, there's no such thing as psychics. You've got House saying there's no such thing as magic and, uh, you know, working these messages and themes into their episodes in really powerful, memorable ways. Um, and that's kind of the gist of why we think this is important. So how is Hollywood reacting to this effort? Do they think it's something that's useful to them? or Yeah, you know? believe it or not, they're really receptive. I've, I've been really impressed. They're coming to us. We've, been, we've done very, very little marketing in terms of reaching out to Hollywood. We've, we've put out a few feelers, um, but essentially they hear about us through the grapevine, through people that we've worked with. It, it's funny because just last week we sat down with Anthony Zyker, who is the guy who created CSI, and... Uh, He's marvelous. I mean, he loves science. He's very, he's very smart. He's very curious. And you can see it in the shows that he creates. Um, he did say they're kind of like, you know, after eight seasons, they're kind of running out of inventive ways to kill people. Yeah, so they're yeah, looking yeah. for ideas. <laughs> he's actually apparently got a T-shirt that, that uh, his staff made for him. And it's like all the different ways they've killed people on the show, stabbing, poisoning, electrocution. Awesome. Mm. And uh, he says, you know, it's getting pretty full and we're running out of, like, ideas. So if you have any, yeah. <laughs> let us know. That's awesome. I think it's this kind of effort is one of those win-win situations where sort of everybody wins. So, why, you know, why not the scientists get better science in movies and Hollywood get, you know, scientists are willing to do some of their work for them, you know, mm-hmm. be, be consultants. And, you know, Phil has made the point that it actually helps sometimes with their story writing because there's really good you know, story ideas right. in, in the real science. And that's something that we, we made a point at our launch symposium. Uh, we, we have partnered with this with Janet and Jerry Zucker, who are a very uh, well-known uh, husband and wife production yeah. producer director team and she basically tells all the all the directors and producers that she knows this will help your storytelling this will give you ideas there's cool stuff out there um, and it will actually help you make better products mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of the selling point and there's there definitely is a hunger for that because hollywood is all about the new idea yeah and they're buying that is what you're saying oh totally yeah that yeah, they've been they've been marvelous Mm-hmm. What, what was your background before you came into this project? Um, I was a, a writer, science writer, um, mm-hmm. specializing primarily in applied physics uh, mm-hmm. topics. Um, I've written a couple cool. of books. Um, so I, you're a geek. I'm a big geek. Awesome. Yes, yeah, yeah, I did yeah. actually major in English, and I kind of like kind of gravitated towards uh, science writing. I also was raised by fundamentalist Christians, mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> which gives me an interesting uh, sort of sidelight into that. That's how I actually ended up meeting some of the skeptics. It's because a couple of them have similar backgrounds. Oh, cool. So yeah, my background is pretty varied. One of the reasons I think that this was a natural job for me to gravitate towards is because I do work at the. I use a lot of pop culture reference in my writing one of my books was the physics of the Buffyverse where essentially Ooh. someone told me you know, <laughs> you know that, that existed <laughs> cool yeah um, where I basically looked at Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and, and found science found physics in it mm-hmm. um, can not you give just, me an example I'm dying to hear oh uh, well one of the clips that I, ch- I tend to show when I give talks on this there was a famous episode called Hush it was nominated oh, for an Emmy yeah, great uh, where the demons steal the voices and if you notice at the very end Buffy gets her voice back and she screams and she lets out this long high pitched prolonged scream and their heads explode in green goo and I love showing that clip because a green goo doesn't get better than that yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And B, it's it's an example of forced oscillation resonance. I mean, it's essentially <laughs> the physics technique that you used to that Ella Fitzgerald used to shatter the wine glass right. in those Memorex commercials. Mm-hmm. So that's what I call found physics, a kind of teaching moment where you can actually take that scene and show it. Everybody laughs, they love the scene, and then you can actually talk about the physics behind it, and they're going to remember that yeah. much more than if I just gave them a dry lecture about forced oscillation of course. resonance. <laughs> now, let me ask you a very oh, wait, serious Jay, question. Wait, Jay, as an aside, that episode is such a compelling episode, and I think only Josh Whedon can pull this off. Literally, was it two-thirds of the whole episode or a, a yeah. half? Was no, no, no dialogue. dialogue. And I mean, it was nominated for an Emmy for its writing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, but I, I've, the couple of times I've read little screenwriting books, they actually tell you, write a, a, a screenplay with no dialogue because it forces you to ah. show, to show, don't tell. Yeah. To show your story and tell your story without relying upon dialogue. So that's actually like, kind of like an exercise that screenwriters are, are and it's, it's an excellent do. communication tool also yeah. I think for scientists and for skeptics as well because we tend to preach. We tend mm-hmm. to be didactic. My books are didactic in nature. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hollywood is not about that. It's about telling a story. But you can get that message across non-verbally. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a question. It's not that important, actually. But okay. were you mad that Buffy and Angel didn't end up together? <laughs> no, <Yeah. laughs> no, not at all. That broke my heart. I couldn't yeah, take it. I know, but so. then Spike was so such an awesome character. Yeah, he was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of liked the way they ended it, where no one got the girl. You know, yeah. she kind of goes off on her own, yeah. and, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if you've been reading the comic books. But no, but they continued the, the, the series continu- pretty much. I didn't- they're continuing the series, and Buffy has like, experimented with same-sex tendencies and all these various things. They're going in some very interesting directions. <laughs> in I, I got to pick eight. up those comics now. <laughs> <laughs> things that things that you can do in comic books, but that the TV shows maybe not, not so much. Not ready they for. Actually, they did same-sex. In, in Buffy, there was a lesbian. Yes. Witch. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Willow and her, yeah, Willow and her girl. You could always tell it, when no. it was Sweeps Week because that's when they had the lesbian oh, love gosh. scenes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, how does it work with your business now? You just get a phone call and they say, you know, we're making a movie about this. Like, who do you think we need, or do they know what they need? Well, they tend they they sometimes they think they know what they need, <laughs> and they need something different. Sometimes they know exactly what they need. Anthony Zyker knew exactly what he needed. Um, he's that kind of guy. Sometimes they say, you know, we've got this screenplay, and it's about this, and we think we need this kind of person, but here's the question we need answered. What do you think? And I will kind of say, well, I think you maybe need two people. You need someone to address this aspect and someone mm. to address this one. And I'm sorry I can't give you specifics, but yeah. we're, we're actually under sure. NDAs from some of these things. And then we essentially look at our database because we're building up a database of scientists, and um, Phil is in it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, among other things. And um, we just try and find the right person to answer that question. Sometimes they'll want to talk to someone local, face-to-face. Sometimes a phone consult is fine. Um, We try and get scientists who kind of understand narrative, who kind of understand what's being asked of them. Mm -hmm. I think one of the the things we really try and make clear to our consultants, the scientists, is that it's not their job to dictate the story. if they go in there with a preconceived notion of what they want to get across, it's going to be a not a less successful consult than if they go and say, what do you need and how can I help you tell your story better and, by the way, still get the science right. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes their, their idea is bad science, but you can say, well, you can't do that. But if what you're looking for eventually is a way to get from here to here, here's a really interesting thing that might actually work. Yeah. Um, we did that uh, on a consult for Iron Man 2. Um, where they had a great, cool. they had an idea that wasn't quite right. We brought in a physicist from Caltech, and he basically sent them off in a really interesting new direction. And um, as far as I know, that scene is going to be in the film. I mean, this is you, so you, awesome. You can never oh, actually God, tell. Right, <laughs> right. Until, I, I, 
You know, I just assumed, I guess, that that Hollywood and Hollywood's like the big container, Hollywood, whatever. It's like this nebulous thing. What you know? What, what does Hollywood mean when people say it? You're basically just talking about people that are producing movies, the director of a movie. They they become aware of a piece of information that they don't have and they would like to have, and mm-hmm. they're and they're smart enough to go and ask for help. Right. So so I thought that Hollywood right, had their own internal system of doing this, of getting the answers to those questions. They do. They have research assistants. They have uh, production assistants. They have interns who, who do all of this. The problem is that when it comes to science, it's very hit and miss. Um, you know, they, they just randomly call uh, departments, and sometimes the departments don't return their phone calls. I mean, they don't know anything about Hollywood. They don't know who these people are. Um, if I email the same people and say I'm with the National Academy of Sciences, that means something to the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And it might not mean anything to them that, you know, such and such productions is calling them. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if I tried to call, you know, Steven Spielberg, he's not going to know who I am. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, he may not know about the National Academy of Sciences, but if I mention Janet and Jerry Zucker, he will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, you need both those sides. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's why it's important that the Zuckers partnered with the National Academy on this. Yeah, so you just basically you're, you're, you bring it together. Yeah, we're streamlining the process. In yeah. the past, how they have found their tech consultants has been just randomly calling universities and trying to find someone. Yeah. And it's, it's luck of the draw. Um, I think uh, Bill Prady on Big Bang Theory got lucky with David Salzberg at UCLA. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. one of the best tech consultant relationships I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But he got really lucky, and he knows it. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you get scientists in your database? Um, a lot of times they volunteer. Um, a lot of times I know them. Sometimes I will just randomly email the chair of a physics department. Yes, I mean, if, if, and that is one of the things that I will do during my talk is give a call out. And if there are any scientists out there who would like to be included in our database, mm-hmm. absolutely, they should be emailing me because we want to hear from them. Uh, the more we have available to us, the better. And what um, is that email, if you want to give it out over the podcast? Um, sure. Uh, it's, it's, uh, my last name is hard to spell, but it's J-O-U-E-L-L-E-T-T-E at N-A-S dot E-D-U. Um, if you go to the – if you Google Science and Entertainment Exchange, you'll find our website, and our contact information is on there as well. Excellent. So this sounds like it's been a rousing success. It has wow. been. Yeah, it has been. Great. I mean, it, we, we, if you bear in mind, we've only been around since last November, yeah. and uh, yeah. we, we've actually done quite a bit since then. Right, so nature abhors a vacuum, and yeah. you guys got sucked into this vacuum. Well, we think the timing is right. Like mm-hmm. I said, there, there's actually a lot of interest now in science themes. Um, we have a new presidential administration that is much more science-friendly, much mm-hmm. more critical thinking-friendly. Um, there's definitely a paradigm shift or a sea change in just the general atmosphere, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of a, a program that's that's poised to take advantage of that. So in the contract, do, do you get things like, you know, and you get to go to the premiere and stuff like that? Um, you know, we don't actually demand that. <laughs> but uh, um, we, we uh, Jeff Silver, who did Tr- who's doing Tron 2, did promise that we'd get to go to the premiere. Of Tron 2? Yeah. The, I, thought, I thought I heard they were remaking Tron 1. But I no, guess no, it's going... a sequel. It's a sequel. Okay, awesome. Well, well, I'm, I'm you may have read about it on I, the io9 blog. It's, 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 uh, it's public knowledge this is being done. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but that's the other thing I was going to mention is it's not just science-themed shows like CSI and some of the ones that you mentioned, but I think the industry, because of, probably because of the technology, the, the CGI, I've noticed a lot more science fiction type of movies out like Iron Man, as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and now you know, sequel to Tron. And those movies tend to need the science tech consultants Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, very much so. the themes of those shows. Um, and, and sometimes we get surprising ones. I mean, we actually, you know, Lie to Me actually contacted us for just, you know, mm-hmm. a really minor query that they had. I mean, they just needed a quick question on a script. And, and right, we responded right. to that. And, you know, it was kind of on the bubble between whether it was science or not, but... 
you know, we answered it. We helped them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of science in that show. That shows about the, the lead. Well, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, one of the things I like about that, because I come from a physics background, and lie detection technology is, is very controversial in mm-hmm. physics. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think in the second episode of that show, they completely debunked lie detecting in this really wonderful, memorable way. Cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was really nice to see that. Cool. Right. But at the same time, I think they're definitely skirting the edge of... Uh, saying, oh, see how is the corner of his mouth turned up? That means there's a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. I, I like the show though because it, it it's very clear about its ambiguity and and, yeah, and, and yeah. that sometimes, I mean, you can tell someone's lying, but why are they lying? Mm-hmm. And there have been episodes where it was you know people were actually lying for a good reason. Yeah. You know, they were lying to cover up something else, and and you know. Sometimes what you think it means. I mean, my favorite scene was where you know he was misreading this one woman judge. You know that that she somehow did not love her daughter because he wasn't seeing any particular fine line expression around yeah. the forehead eye area. And it turns out, of course, she'd had Botox. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, I mean, it That's makes cool. it very clear that there are certain things that can throw you off. That, right, that right. this is a, this is an inexact quote unquote science. And I think the show does make that clear. Have you seen any of the episodes of the new series Mental? I have not seen Mental. No, it's no, horrible. Okay, on, <laughs> in, on multiple levels. Just as a neuroscientist and a physician, mm-hmm. it was hard to keep from vomiting every moment of that show. It was <laughs> so <laughs> terrible. So I don't know if you were. It sounds like you were not involved with hooking no, them up. No, no, they have tech. not. You know, no, they, they probably don't have any. Well, sometimes they don't. You know, it's it's. We're doing something at Comic Con in in a couple of weeks. We yeah. have a panel um, where we're talking. You know, we've we've got the fringe guys there. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Jane Espenson, and she's going to be talking about Caprica and about dogs house and um we did we do have a neuroscientist who is on what yeah one of the consultants to fringe um he's new mm-hmm. <laughs> so we won't really be seeing his input till the second season um but dollhouse it turned out didn't even have a tech consultant for yeah. its neuroscience so we're ho- kind of hoping that you know we'll be able to at least say you know we do have them we have neuroscientists and they can help you so. right. <laughs> right, right. what about consultants for things other than movies or TV? What about, say, books or comics or vi- or video games? Well, it's interesting that you bring up comics and video games because we're interested in that, definitely. Certainly comics, because so often those get turned into movies. Um, in fact, our program coordinator, uh, Rick Lovard, has a comic called Berserker with Top Cow, and uh, he definitely wants, you know, to, like, you know, bring the exchange, because he's, he's actually talked to a couple scientists for, some of, for, for his background, and we're not going to see that till later on in the series. Berserker just premiered with its premiere issue. Um, but uh, he, there's definitely a need for it there in comics. Okay. Now, we, this is one of those issues where we talk a lot about the impact that media like movies and TV uh, has on the public perception of science and scientists. But is there any actual data to back that up? Do, or is it really just something that we feel? And, and there, There's very little data, but yeah. there, it's growing. There's really only a couple people who are actually studying this. One of them yeah. is David Kirby, and the other is Marty Kaplan, who, uh, who runs the Hollywood Health and Society Program out of the University of South Carolina, uh, Southern California. Um, and he's done a number of studies. Um, he's actually got in close enough relationships with, say, Grey's Anatomy or mm-hmm. ER, where he was able to actually um, do a test with them where they agreed to like basically plant a piece of information about breast cancer in an issue, mm-hmm. in, in an episode, and then test before and after people's awareness of that fact. And mm-hmm. it went through the roof. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, of course, if there was a mis- piece of misinformation, the belief in the yeah. misinformation would go through that, the roof. That's too. why people, were, I think, were rightly upset when uh, a couple years ago Eli Stone... Oh. Uh, came out with the anti-vax storyline. People were very upset. And actually, people in Hollywood were upset. Mm -hmm. You know, believe it or not, there are many critical thinkers in Hollywood, and they were very upset, you know, about that particular storyline. Yeah, and I think their solution was the disclaimer. 
Yeah. Right, yeah. which doesn't really work. Um, well, what it, well, you put the disclaimer, but you've already put that bit of misinformation in this very powerful narrative context. Yep, right. And I think we've already seen that a good story, an anecd- good anecdotal story will trump data every time in the public mind. I mean, absolutely. I mean, fair or not, people, yeah. people who have not been trained to catch themselves mm-hmm. I mean, are, are going to buy mm-hmm. yeah. that yeah. story. And the bane of our existence as skeptics is that the psychological literature shows that if you tell somebody that something is a myth or that it's wrong, there actually more people will end up remembering the fact it's being true. Oh, <laughs> so yes, that, think, that does not surprise me. Yeah, exactly. A is a myth, and then just three months later, oh yeah, there's something about A. I remember that. That's <laughs> kind of so that's, a, that's why they said the disclaimer thing. Yeah, that that makes us leave the room screaming. You know? yeah. <laughs> but that's actually why, if you if why it's, say that scene in Lie to Me where he debunks the lie detector. I mean, mm-hmm. it puts it in this powerful context, yeah. and they remember the story of the debunking yes. and yeah. and why it's wrong, and and it actually works. They actually remember that verbatim. Yeah, that scene. That's right. You have to put it in the context of a story because that's how we think and how we remember things, which is why, as you said, the Eli Stone mm-hmm. thing of telling this powerful, emotional story about a child, that's what people are going to remember, not any other thing that you right, have going Right, right. And what they'll remember is that child didn't become vaccinated and he died, and that's terrible, mm-hmm. so I should vaccinate my child. And that's yeah. how the thinking is going to go. Mm-hmm. And if you tell the story that somehow because he was vaccinated the child got sick and died then people are going to just automatically take away vaccines are bad mm-hmm. and that i think is what happened mm-hmm. so what's your favorite sci-fi movie and or tv show well sci-fi movie is blade runner i mean that's kind of a no-brainer yeah, Classic. Classic. <laughs> yeah. i have that movie memorized yeah yeah, yeah. And i, I even listen to the soundtrack all right that's, <laughs> that's, that's really good the classic version or the later director's cut director's cut oh absolutely yeah. Yeah. director's yeah. cut got rid yeah. of the voiceover exactly yeah. right. the voiceover ruined it you don't need to like lead the audience yeah Right. Um, and actually, one of the we actually did get to sit down with Ridley Scott at some mm-hmm. point, and it was marvelous to be able to cool. like sit down and hear his stories. That's um, wow. And as for TV, I mean, I have a lot of favorite shows. I mean, obviously, we watch House. I watch Lie to Me, and I watch Bones on a regular basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are those are all good. No, big, no big Bang Theory. I do watch Big Bang Theory, yeah. It tends to conflict sometimes, so we have yeah. to put that on DVR and catch up with it. Oh, yeah. yeah you got to TiVo everything. Exactly. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for sitting down with us. We really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? I am so ready. Oh, I'm so ready. Totally. Here we go. Number three. Item number one. A new systematic review of published research concludes that there is no significant nutritional difference between organically grown food and more traditionally grown food. Item number two. Scientists have developed a technology for barcoding human DNA, which can be used for rapid bioidentification using non-invasive transdermal scanning. Uh, we're, we're one step closer now, guys. Item number three, scientists have successfully created brown fat cells from skin cells and transplanted them into adult mice. Wow. Wait, they did what to the who now? Brown fat cells. Rebecca, go first. Me? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> brown whoever, fat cells? Whoever complains cells? first, I usually have them go first. <laughs> That's a good system. It's not fair. You know how I like Rebecca. to complain. What's a brown fat cell? Brown fat cell? 
fat cell? You have, there's regular fat cells, and there's brown fat cells, and the brown fat cells, the, that's like the fat that's in between your organs and stuff. That's like the, the good fat. It's, oh. Yes, it's good fat. Right, it's it's good a little, fat. There's little pieces of it throughout your body. It's neat. You it's need good, it. It's good stuff. It's very metabolically active. And it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did I say that? Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, so good fat was made out of skin cells and then transplanted planted into adult mice. That There's a lot going on there, and I don't see how any of it is at all not plausible because I just don't understand the mechanisms from which one gets brown fat cells. So that that's a mystery to me. Barcoding human DNA. I'm pretty sure that that is a sign of the apocalypse that I was taught when I was a kid. That sounds like something that could work for rapid bioidentification using non-invasive transdermal scanning. Yeah, why not? That, yeah, sure. I'm kind of at a loss here. I don't know if you can tell. Um, no significant nutritional difference between organically grown food and more traditionally grown food. I can totally buy that. That makes perfect sense. Um, we all know that organic food is steeped in bunkness. I'm saying that that one's science. I'll say barcodes are science. And I'll say that I don't know what the F happens with brown fat cells, but you're making it up. Okay. Jay? I guess. Although that DNA thing, I don't know. Can I go back? We're I don't on know. To, we're I'm on being to Jay now. I'm being Bob. <laughs> you are. Yeah. Just being Bob. I, it's fun, isn't it? I'm going to need another 10 minutes. <laughs> say nano, Rebecca. <laughs> nano. We need Ooh, to give millions and billions and zillions yeah. of dollars to this. All right. So a new systematic review of published research concludes that there is no significant nutritional difference between organically grown food and more traditionally grown food. Man, I could think of some reasons why off the cuff I wouldn't believe this, and that is because I do actually notice a difference mostly between organic and just regularly grown food. Usually the organic stuff looks a little bit better. It tastes a little bit better. You know, Sometimes it's even bigger. That's at my particular supermarket, so maybe I can't trust that. That's too anecdotal. I mean, I do know when you go to Costco, all the fruit they have there is awesome. And I don't know if that's organic or what, but it's way better than the shit I get at my supermarket. I could, I could see how that's true, though. Scientists have developed a technology for barcoding human DNA. That's awesome. Yeah, I believe that. Of course they barcoded human DNA. I mean, we're all going to be on the shelves of stores all across the world now, right? Isn't that why they're doing it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Bob? Yeah. I already have an Isbin. That's when the Antichrist comes. <laughs> That's how he's going to control everybody. Yeah, right. And then the last one, scientists have successfully created brown fat cells from skin cells and transplanted them into adult mice. I don't know about that. They made them from skin cells. I could see maybe them making them, not skin cells, but, but stem cells or, or maybe other kinds of fat cells. But skin cells, I don't know. It doesn't seem right to me. That's the fake. Okay, Evan. The significant nutritional difference between organically grown food and more traditionally grown food, well, no significant difference. That doesn't surprise me. I think that might be a curveball, though. Uh, the second one about barcoding the human DNA, oh, yeah. I mean, if they can make little violins and pianos that can play, you know, Brahms and Shostakovich and all that stuff, I think that they can barcode the human DNA. I think it's fascinating and true. And then uh, creating 
brown fat cells from skin cells and transplanting them into adult mice. Uh, I think I would go with that, but I'm going to go, I think, against the grain a bit here. And I'll, There's something not not right. I don't quite know what it is about the first one, Steve, the uh, difference between organically grown and traditionally grown food. I think there might be a slight difference. So I'll say that one is fiction. Okay, Bob. The first one about the um, organic food, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And the key, the key words here, no significant nutritional difference. Um, if there was a significant difference, either way, that would be some, some news. But significant difference? No, that doesn't surprise me at all. The second one, let's go to the third one. They created brown fat cells with skin cells and transplanted them. I don't have any problem with that. They've been messing around with skin cells for quite a, quite a bit now and changing them into uh, different types of uh, of stem cells and stuff. So that the fact that they could change them now to fat to brown to uh, brown fat cells isn't a surprise. And that what a great use of that technology! You implant them into mice and eventually people, and that'd be a great way to treat obesity because it's so metabolically active. And the second one, I don't like this one at all. Uh, barcoding human DNA. What exactly does that mean? Barcoding human DNA. What's oh, so maybe you could what you can change the DNA somehow so that it's easily read. But then and then but then what do you test to when you when you read somebody? How what what cells are you going to read? You got are you going to make it some change to every every all your DNA? I'm I'm not buying. There's something wacky about that. I'm not. I think you subtly changed something about that news story if it was really a news story, Steve. And, uh, if that is see. your real name. Okay. Yeah, I did, there's something that's not right. So two. Okay, Barcoding. awesome. You guys are all Boss. over the place, which I like. So we'll just take them in order. <laughs> Item number one, a new systematic review of published research concludes that there is no significant nutritional difference between organically grown food and more traditionally grown food. Evan, you thought this was the fiction. Everyone else bought it. And this one is science. Yay. Yeah. This was a the most thorough systematic review done to date of research published on organic food in over the last 50 years. Wow. And they said, bottom line, for all the different nutritional factors that they looked at, there was either no difference at all or there was a tiny and non-significant difference. So no significant difference in the nutritional value of the food. They weren't looking at pesticides, so that wasn't a factor that they were looking at. So there are several different kinds of advantages that organic food advocates claim for organically grown food. One is that it's nutritionally superior. This review says the evidence does not support that. The other is that you get fewer pesticides. That's a tricky question. That That's somewhat true, although it, it, it depends on how strictly the organic grower is adhering to organic methods. And also it depends on what the, what the farm next door is doing. What they found is that if you have a, a farm using pesticides next door, that you can have just as many pesticides on your organically grown food, even though you're not using them yourself directly. So, or or a, a lot higher pesticides, closer to what you would see in, in more traditionally grown foods. So there's, the differences there are not clear. And of course, the bottom line there is that what critics of organic food say is that, okay, there's a little bit of pesticides on the uh, industrial grown or more traditionally grown food, but uh, it's below, well below safety level, so it doesn't matter. The third uh, advantage that is claimed, which is really a completely separate point from the value of the food itself, is that organic growing methods are more sustainable and therefore it's better for the environment. 
or people think they're done more locally as well. So there's less trucking involved and all that, but I also found out that's that that's not necessarily, that's not true, necessarily either. true either. Yeah. That's not necessarily true either, and uh, locally grown does not necessarily require less trucking. That's a separate issue yet entirely. Mm-hmm. However, I think what what's, what's we need to do is separate this notion of sustainability from the notion of organically grown because those really are distinct things. You, you can have sustainable agriculture without a lot of the things that are involved with growing food organically. I, I, and of course, I think everyone's in favor of sustainable agriculture, right? Because what's the alternative? Non-sustainable agriculture? Right. You know, that, so <laughs> who's advocating that? Uh, this is a, a complicated issue, and I don't want to get drilled down. We don't have the time, you know, in the science or fiction segment yeah. of the show to really drill down. We could do a whole down. show on We food. could. Yeah. We could do a whole show on this. And uh, I still plan, and maybe I'll, I'll really make an effort to do this sooner than later, to get one or two experts on this to really, yeah. you know, delve into this topic more deeply. But this is the, the, the quick yeah. overview. Um, the other issue with the sustainability is if you... You know, could we feed the world growing food organically? A lot of people say no. Some people say yes. You know, it's that's another controversy. So these are all questions that I would love to get into with with, with a uh, couple of experts on you know, the two sides of this question. But this re- recent systematic review, you know, pretty compellingly argues that that one advantage that it's more nutritious is 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 not supported by the evidence. Let's go on to item number two. Scientists have developed a technology for barcoding human DNA, which can be used for rapid bioidentification using non-invasive transdermal scanning, and that one is complete and utter fiction. So yes. congratulations, Bob. Ah. Uh, Bob. Lo- lots of things wrong with that. I, there was a DNA barcoding article that I that inspired me, but I really changed a lot of things about it. Yeah, you almost got me. It's like barcoding. Well, barcoding. I, I know. Right I'm always trying to get you on the, the, the little catchphrase. I just p- pulled the barcode. So what researchers are tra- trying to do is use DNA par- barcodes, quote-unquote barcodes. It really is kind of just an analogy for plants. And what, what they're trying – they've actually already started doing this for animals. But they're not doing this to identify individuals within a species, but to identify species from each other. Mm. And, and the the point of this is to say that species X, whatever that species is, is defined by having these DNA sequences, right? If you have these DNA sequences, you're you are a member of this species. And and it's easier to do in animals because there's more variability than among plants. So it, in order to do this. Uh, again, and now they're trying to extend this technique to plants. In order to do this, you need to identify either genes or segments of the DNA that are there, that are present in most or all plants, if you can, and that are variable enough that they will be different between every species of plant, right? This is important for conservation reason, reasons primarily. The things that are wrong with, you know, what I came up with is, um, again, this kind of barcoding DNA technology is not used to differentiate individuals within a species, but to differentiate, to characterize different species from each other. Not that you can't use DNA analysis to, in, to identify individuals. You can, but just not using this kind of a, of a of this bar, quote-unquote barcoding technique. But also, when you use stretches of DNA to identify individuals, you have to actually analyze the DNA, and it takes time. There's no method 
It's like you know putting your hand in front of a scanner and using a, a beam to read your DNA. That's that's completely made up. I don't know of any technology that can do that. Got a cuff. Right. That's tricorder. That's a ways <laughs> off. Yeah, that's like tricorder type of stuff. That's a ways off. Uh, this means that scientists have successfully created brown fat cells from skin cells and transplanted them into adult mice is also science. And this is very neat. Yeah. Hey. Cool. And Bob, you're right. Brown fat is is your friend. It's good fat. It's very metabolically active. The thinking is that it, it brown fat uses it burns energy to make heat and it's just a way of heating up our body to to fight to protect us against the cold right it's just a way of regulating our body temperature because it's so metabolically active and it burns up so many calories it may actually be a way of fighting obesity the question is how do you increase the amount of brown fat that somebody has right now we don't have any mechanism for doing that this is a bruce spiegelman phd from the dana farber cancer institute leading a team and what they showed is that they can take they're trying to identify which proteins or which genes um, are, are the triggers that will turn the precursor cells into brown fat cells. And they found a, a protein that would turn an early muscle cell into a brown fat cell. Uh, but then they said, wow. okay, well, maybe we can use the same thing to turn other kinds of cells into brown fat cells. And they were able to do it with fibroblasts, which is a type of skin cell, right? So your, so your basic... Yeah. skin type of uh, precursor cell. And then they also showed that if they transplanted them into adult mice, that they were met highly metabolically active, so that they were doing what they were supposed to do. They have not done the follow-up to see does it actually make the mice thinner, right? That would be the, right. the ultimate sort of test if you want to use this as a treatment for obesity. Uh, so congratulations, Bob. Good job. Thank you. Good job. You suck. <laughs> Evan. Hi. It's time for Who's That Noisy? It is time for Who's That Noisy. I think we should play last week's Who's That Noisy again Let's. to remind the listeners. Here it is. In the name of the guys, I go to the gate of 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 the that was an auction house, right, Evan? Yeah, that's what I thought at first. <laughs> no, no. That was, in fact, a uh, chanting ceremony courtesy of the Church Universal and Triumphant, led by Elizabeth Clare Prophet. You ever heard of this woman before? No. No. It is a cult. And, you know, they, uh, they believe in a lot of wild things. That is for sure. So they believe in the science of the spoken word. Um, they uh, have a system of spoken prayers. They call them decrees, uh, and they call and that's what they call the system, the science of the spoken word. They practice this. It's repetition of prayers, generally in English, in unison, at full voice, often rapidly, while visualizing a specific outcome, along with spiritual energy in various colors. That makes perfect sense. That's, Very scientific. It's magic. It's casting the spells. Effectively, yeah. Now, some of our listeners guessed that, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the first one to guess it correctly from the message boards, our friend Chu, C H E W, as in Chewbacca, or was the first Chew. one to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for this week, Ev? Shut itself down, so I'm just reestablishing it. All right. And now, for the moment you've all been waiting for, the highlight of the podcast Who's That Noisy?
That's Bob's dog while we're rec- while we're recording the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Jay, you got a quote for us? I have a quote from Robert L. Park. He's uh, most noted for his critical commentaries on alt-med and other pseudoscience, as well as his opposition to space travel and space development. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, he yes. said that on our show. First year we interviewed him. He, he's, he favors robotic exploration over human exploration. Jay might not have been might on, not have been on that one. He said, The greatest discoveries <laughs> of science have always been those that force us to rethink our beliefs about the universe and our place in it. Bobby L. Park! That's a great guy. <laughs> Does anyone call him Bobby? Bob Park. Doesn't matter. Bob Park. That was a nice touch. <laughs> Jay. Well, thanks, Jay. couple of quick announcements. So uh, we have two skeptical events coming up where the SGU will be doing a live show. So if you could not make it to TAM 7, fear not, because Labor Day weekend is Dragon Con 2009. And at Dragon Con, there is a science track, a podcasting track, and a skeptical track. And a dragon track. And, that's right. And the SGU will be there on various talks and panels, and we're going to be doing a live show on Sunday. And a lot of your, a lot of the uh, skeptical names you'll recognize will be there, like Phil Plate and... Brian Dunning, a lot of the, some of the our friends from Australia are going to be there. A lot of the skeptics will be there. Maria, so cool. Oh, and I just met like a, a skeptic named Maria. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and and Maria. on that, before you move on, I should mention that Maria is um, hosting a star party right before the night before Dragon Con. So you should get there early because it's going to be really cool. She's going to have a lot of celebrities there, skeptical celebrities, of course. Right. It's going to be a benefit for a uh, the, the astronomer who named an asteroid after me, Jeff Medkef. Yeah, all the details are on Skeptic if you, if you go to Skeptic and search for Star Party. Uh, awesome. So yeah, get there early. It's going to be great. And that's in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the Northeast, the following Saturday, September 12th, there is the Nexus Con, the Northeastern Conference on Science and Skepticism, hosted by the New England Skeptical Society and the New York City Skeptics, which, again, will feature a live show by the SGU, as well as incredible lineup of science and skeptical lecturers. Uh, Carl Zimmer will be there, John Rennie, mm. Jamie Ian Swiss, and many others. Check it out at the. Uh, you can get to um, the the web page from uh, our our site or any CSS con, and uh, that's going to be a good time. So it's in New York City. So if you're in the Northeast, it'll be close to you. So trying to spread these conventions around the country so people can get to them no matter where you live. So thank you all for joining me again this week. Thank early. you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Happy birthday. Happy yes. birthday. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. 
For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on DIG or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 